you can go through and read any scripture with a different lens in different times of your life. And one of the readings that I have of Doctrine and Covenants 17, it could be interpreted as being a sort of covenant between God and the three witnesses. Is that how they viewed it? Did they view this as the that moment of commitment to to share their witness forever? Quite possibly, although the three of them really didn't talk much about this revelation. Hmm. But it makes sense that they to conclude that they viewed it as a, as a covenant because over the course of their lives, it became really apparent how seriously they took their mission and how they continued to testify as if they considered themselves under a divine covenant to do so. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello and welcome to this episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. My name is Nick Galetti. I'm host of this episode. And with us is our very special guest, Larry Morris. Larry Morris is an independent writer and historian. He received degrees in philosophy and American literature from BYU and was an editor with both the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship and the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He has published several articles on the Book of Mormon Witnesses and is co-editor with John W. Welch of Oliver Cowdery, Scribe Elder Witness. He has published articles in BYU Studies, the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, the Farms Review, the Enzyme, and the New Era. He has also published several books, including The Fate of the Corps, What Became of the Lewis and Clark Explorers After the Expedition, and A Treasury of Latter-day Saint Letters. Larry and his wife, Deborah, live in Salt Lake City and have four children and eight grandchildren. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Glad to be here. Thank you. You are now retired, but you did work on the Joseph Smith Papers Project. What was your involvement at that time during with Joseph Smith Papers Project? I was working on uh, Documents Volume 1. Okay. Which is quite applicable because the revelation that we're talking about, DNC 17, is one of those documents. We know that this revelation was received in June of 1829. We don't have a date. No specific date. Just the month. What exactly was the foundational purpose of the revelation itself? Why do we have DNC 17? It deals with the three witnesses. There's a long history for those three witnesses. Martin Harris had known the Smith family for several years probably as early as 1825, something like that, because he lived nearby in uh, Palmyra. So he had long been acquainted with the Smith family. And, of course, Martin Harris was involved in the translation in 1828 in Harmony when he and Joseph translated the 116 pages which Martin Harris lost the summer of 1828, about a year before this revelation took place. And then Oliver Cowdery arrived in New York. He was from Vermont, just like Joseph Smith, and he arrived in New York around 1826. We're not certain exactly when he arrived, but he was definitely in the area by 1828. David Whitmer lived in Fayette Township. He'd lived there for uh, several years, and that's about maybe 30 miles southeast of Palmyra. At any rate, Martin Harris knew about the Book of Mormon early, of course, but David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery met in the fall of 1828. We don't know exactly how they met. David Whitmer just said he was with Oliver Cowdery that fall when he, he saw him when he was on business, you know. One of the first things they started talking about was 
the stories they were hearing about this uh, young man who had obtained some gold plates. And they started interviewing the neighbors, and both of them thought there was something to the story, and they investigated independently, and eventually Oliver Cowdery, who was teaching school, boarded with the Smith family, and he started giving David Whitmer reports on what he was finding out. In the uh, spring of 1829, Oliver decided to go from uh, Palmyra down to Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Joseph and Emma were living, to act as Joseph Smith's scribe. And while he was doing that, he sent letters to David Whitmer. And in June, early in June, just a few weeks before this revelation was received, David Whitmer met Joseph Smith, invited him to come up to Fayette to finish the translation. And all three of them had heard about this Book of Mormon scripture mentioning three witnesses, and they were very interested in becoming witnesses themselves. They so, they verbalized this to Joseph. You bet. They, uh-huh. So we have them all kind of getting together at this point. We'll say June sure. 1829. And so at what point does this revelation come with in context to the actual experience that they had? How how much before the actual witness experience did this revelation come? Probably days. But it doesn't list a specific date, and we don't have a specific date for when the three witnesses had their experience either. Okay. So it's kind of guesswork, you know. But the heading to the revelation said, a revelation given to Oliver, David, and Martin previous to them having a view of the plates. We just know it was before. Right. (laughs) But I would say probably days before. Okay. As opposed to weeks. Now, And part of this revelation that we might say makes it somewhat unique, is that the chapter heading claims that it was a revelation given through Joseph Smith by way of Urim and Thummim. How accurate is that? As I understand it, that's perhaps a misnomer. That is really problematic because Joseph Smith, he didn't use the phrase Urim and Thummim at this time. In 1829. Right. As far as we know, he didn't use it until 1833. But it was kind of used uh, retroactively. Eventually, Joseph Smith used Urim and Thummim somewhat synonymously with interpreters. So it's not always clear exactly what he's talking about. It's the, they both work on the same principle. But really, the Urim and Thummim was, uh, consisted of a breastplate and some uh, what we would call eyeglasses or spectacles that attached to the breastplate, only instead of having something that you could see through, those spectacles contained stones that the uh, prophet looked into and saw whatever a seer sees. So you have the Urim and Thummim, which he received when he found the plates uh, under Moroni's direction. Then uh, Joseph Smith had a stone that he used. A seer stone. Yes. And he used it to translate most of what we have in the Book of Mormon now. And eventually, he used the phrases interchangeably. He said, I use the Urim and Thummim to translate the Book of Mormon because he was calling his seer stone a Urim and Thummim. So it's not always clear exactly which artifact was being discussed, but he used the seer stone. He and Hiram and a neighbor by the name of Willard Chase found that stone when they were digging a well in 1822. And Joseph was using that stone to translate. So really, when he says Urim and Thummim, he's not talking about the artifact that was with the plates. He's talking about the seer stone. 
Okay. In this instance. Is he then seeing words? Is that what section 17 basically is? Joseph Smith never said okay. what the uh, revelatory mechanism was in using the seer stone or the Urim and Thummim. Okay. David Whitmer said that he saw words, but Joseph never confirmed that. So we're not sure. Okay. How did these three witnesses come together that day, the day of this witness event? Were they called by Joseph Smith? Did they know this was going to take place? Yes, they did. They, they had kind of expressed their interest in being witnesses, and eventually Joseph Smith told them through this revelation uh, that it would happen. Okay, so they all got together, and they had this experience that we can we can read about in, in, in many different sources. But as far as one of the aspects of this experience that you bring out in the essay that I found interesting was one of the accounts that were given explained that they had this experience of the spirit, as some might have described it. It was a spiritual experience where they were able to see a table and see various items on this table, one of them being described as being many gold plates. Right. So what is the significance of that, if there is any, that it wasn't just the gold plates of the Book of Mormon, but there were many gold plates? I believe the other artifacts were also Book of Mormon artifacts, so they were also kind of testifying of the truth of the Book of Mormon, just as the plates were. David Whitmer really gave the best explanation. He said they saw a table with many plates including the uh, plates that Joseph translated for the Book of Mormon, and the Sword of Laban and the Leahona were some of the artifacts that he saw. So there were even more. There were quite, a, quite a few. I don't have a list of them right now, but yeah, David Whitmer at least mentioned several plates, Sword of Laban, Yerman Thummim, and the Leahona. And this was, again, the, the purpose of, of them being the three witnesses as, as we've kind of talked about and along with the eight witnesses, is to attest to what Joseph had been claiming. You bet. For quite a while. Yes. So what, how did this experience then affect Joseph Smith, having these witnesses? Well, the, Joseph was tremendously relieved because up until that point, he was the only one who had seen the, the artifacts. So it was a great relief to him to have others to testify. The three witnesses offer kind of a religious testimony because uh, they testify of seeing the artifacts and hearing the voice of God confirming that the Book of Mormon uh, was uh, correctly translated. And they also see Moroni appears and explains everything and shows them the artifacts. So you, it is a, uh, a vision. Of course, David Whitmer said, I, I saw those uh, objects just as plain as I see this table or this chair in this room. Certainly from David Whitmer's point of view, it was both a vision, and an empirical experience. Did they say that they ever touched them? We know with the eight witnesses that they f held and felt the plates. The best evidence from the various uh, witness statements of the three witnesses is fairly conclusive that they didn't touch any of those artifacts. The eight witnesses handled the plates and looked at the characters, but the eight witnesses didn't offer a religious testimony. They just said, we have seen the plates, and we know that Joseph Smith has these plates that he's talked about, but they didn't testify of hearing the voice of God, or they didn't say, we know this book is true, or anything like that. They just strictly said, we handled and examined and saw the plates. Joseph Smith has the plates that he claims. Yeah. So these two witness statements function very differently, and 
And those statements themselves are actually quite curious because do we know who was the author of the actual three witnesses statement? No, we don't. Or the, the eight witness statement. But we don't know who originally wrote it. Some of the presentations of the statement of the three witnesses has their signature on the bottom as if it was some kind of statement that they signed to. But did they ever really sign to this statement? We don't have an actual manuscript that they uh, signed. How did we know? It's understood that they signed. That's a, that they signed. That's assumed, obviously. But they repeatedly throughout their life attested to what was written there. They never contradicted the statement that was printed. Oh, that's definitely true. So they always approached it with the obvious assumption that they had signed this statement. There was no conflict. In effect, they signed it. Right. Okay. And of course, that's part of the great story about the three witnesses. All three were eventually out of the church, and David Whitmer was permanently out of the church. But they always affirmed their uh, testimony. And I believe David Whitmer is the best a Book of Mormon witness because he lived so long. He didn't die until 1888. And he was out of the church, so people could not accuse him of having an ulterior motive for sticking with his testimony. And he uh, he gave frequent interviews to reporters and interested parties who would kind of grill him and ask him one question after another. And he explained his experience in much more detail than uh, Oliver or Martin did. Now, the the character behind these witnesses can be, I don't want to say called into question, but people, you know, when you're a witness to anything, your character is, is relevant. You bet. If you were to say something about the character of these men, how would you describe their various characters? Well, one of the interesting things is they're all quite different. So they kind of cover the bases in terms of uh, personality. Uh, Martin Harris was very zealous and people considered him an honest man. He had a good reputation among the uh, community, you know, the people in the community. But he was a little on the eccentric side. Would you say he was impetuous? Probably. Okay. And uh, that that also worked to, to Joseph Smith's advantage. Okay. Because he was always very anxious to help, and would jump right in. He's the person who took the uh, characters to Professor Anthon to try and see if they were authentic. He, he loaned Joseph and Emma $50 when they had to move from Palmyra down to Harmony. And then he volunteered to mortgage his farm and pay for the printing of the Book of Mormon. So that kind of zealous attitude tended to get him in trouble sometimes, like when he lost the manuscript. Mm -hmm. But it also really helped Joseph at times when he needed it. His personality strikes me as he was what I would probably call the person most likely to be kind of flighty or unstable. Okay. would be Martin Harris. Does that become problematic when we read his statements then? Or, or how much weight does that give to what he said here with the three witness statements? Well, yeah, it creates certain problems for him as a witness. For example, many times when he talked about his experience... If people ask him, did you see the plates with your physical eyes or your spiritual eyes, he usually said, with my spiritual eyes. Of course, it's not exactly clear what the questioner or what Martin Harris meant when he said, yeah. I saw it with my spiritual eyes. And, and no one gets into that issue, you know. But critics will say, oh, okay, that meant that he just imagined them or he saw them in his mind's eye, so to speak. But it's not clear at all that that's what Martin meant by that phrase. 
but it does raise a question. Of course, the good thing with the three witnesses, they kind of balance each other. They've got the other two guys. Right. Uh, David Whitmer is really the rock-solid witness in my mind because he's known as a very clear-thinking, honest, straightforward, down-to-earth individual. And Oliver is really more the uh, intellectual of the three. Among the three of them, you really have different types of personality. And when you take their witnesses together, I think it's really strong. You can go through and read any scripture with a different lens in different times of your life. And one of the readings that I have of Doctrine and Covenant 17, it could be interpreted as being a sort of covenant between God and the three witnesses. Is that how they viewed it? Did they view this as that moment of commitment to share their witness forever? Quite possibly, although the three of them really didn't talk much about this revelation. Hmm. But it makes sense that they to conclude that they viewed it as a, as a covenant because over the course of their lives, it became really apparent how seriously they took their mission and how they continued to testify as if they considered themselves under a divine covenant to do so. How did the early saints respond to this statement, and when was it even presented? Well, you know, the uh, DNC 17 really wasn't presented very early because it wasn't included. We don't know why it wasn't included, but it wasn't included in the Book of Commandments, which was published in 1833. So it wasn't included until the DNC was published in 1835. The uh, three witness and eight witness statements were, of course, published in the Book of Mormon, when it was published in March of 1830. But the revelation, the publication was delayed for so long that I don't think it really had an effect on those early saints being converted. or. It didn't change the weight of the three witness statement having this revelation. No, it didn't. Okay. One of the things that I've always been kind of curious about and not knowing the history of the three witnesses as well as I think I would like is what impact did the actual witness experience have on their testimonies? Did they have testimonies of the Book of Mormon prior to that? Or was this experience something that solidified something to them that they didn't have previous? If you take it one by one, uh, Martin Harris really, according to his own account, gained his testimony in uh, 1827 just from talking to the Smith family. Joseph received the plates in September of 1827, and by the time he needed to move in December, Martin Harris said he had gained a testimony of the Book of Mormon simply by talking to the Smiths and praying about the matter. He hadn't read or heard any of the Book of Mormon at that point. <laughs> but he was, he was on board. <laughs> right. Oliver Cowdery met the Smith family in the fall of 1828 and at some point lived with the Smiths for a while. And the same thing happened with him. He gained a testimony. Of course, Joseph and Emma at that time were down in Harmony. He hadn't even met Joseph, but he just by talking to Joseph Sr. and Lucy and praying, Oliver Cowdery gained a testimony. And that was why he went down to Harmony to, to help Joseph translate was because, and according to his own words, he already believed that the Book of Mormon was true, even though he hadn't had any experience with the text itself. So he and Martin are kind of similar in that regard. And David Whitmer gained his, he didn't really specify exactly when he had, quote, a testimony, but 
he and Oliver were communicating from the fall of uh, 28 to the spring of 29 when Oliver started helping with the translation. They were communicating by letter or meeting each other. And after Oliver starting help, uh, starting assisting Joseph with the translation, they started on April 7, 1829. He wrote letters to David Whitmer, and David Whitmer heard about it through Oliver. So it was really the correspondence with Oliver and his own investigation. He went around talking to neighbors of Joseph Smith. Everybody said Joseph had plates. It really didn't seem to be a controversy whether he had plates or not. The neighbors were convinced he had plates, and they wanted to share in the wealth of those plates because they had been involved with treasure-seeking with Joseph Smith. So David Wentworth became convinced that there was something to it, and through his meetings and correspondence with Oliver, he gained a testimony of the Book of Mormon, so to speak. So all three of them, really, before the text of the Book of Mormon was available to read, had been converted. But David was the only one that hadn't been part of the translation work. That's correct. Martin Harrison and Oliver Cowdery, a year apart, both acted as scribe. With Martin, it was from approximately April to June of 1828, and Oliver was April to June of 1829. So they had both acted as scribe. Of course, part of their uh, conversion was hearing Joseph dictate the text. Is there any way that we can attribute a change in their behavior, a change in their stances, or anything that really came from this experience with Moroni and the plates, other than the three-witness statement itself? By the time they had the experience, all three were uh, quite dedicated to the cause. David Whitmer had gone down to Harmony and helped Oliver and Joseph move up to Fayette, and they finished the translation at the Whitmer home. Mm -hmm. So the Whitmer family was making all of these sacrifices and supporting Joseph Smith before the translation was complete. So really all three of them, it really wasn't significant in terms of changing their lives because all three had basically become quite dedicated to the cause beforehand. One of the unique things about the three witnesses, again, with this idea that they had this revelation that gave them this charge to be a witness publicly at all times, basically. But we have instances like the one with Mary Whitmer, who was essentially a witness to the plates, but wasn't given that charge. That's true. David Whitmer uh, mentioned her and I, uh, her experience. I believe it was mentioned by her grandson. According to the, the secondhand accounts, uh, she saw Moroni and, and he showed her the plates. Unfortunately, we don't have a direct testimony from her on that. But you have several witnesses of the plates besides the formal witnesses because uh, Mary Whitmer would be one. Lucy Mack Smith would be an important witness of the Book of Mormon because she didn't see, but she handled the uh, Urim and Thummim and the spectacles both. She handled through material. She also saw the plates underneath a uh, frock that Joseph was using to cover them. She didn't say whether she handled the plates or not, but William Smith and Catherine Smith, Joseph Smith's brother and sister, both said they handled the plates through a cloth. So you have several witnesses like that who had some kind of physical experience. Emma Smith is another one. They had an empirical experience of handling the plates. So they all could be 
witnesses of the Book of Mormon, so to speak. But these, again, these three were very unique and set apart to this special witness. Absolutely, and they took it very seriously. Oliver Cowdery is a really good example, because after he was excommunicated in 1838, there were attempts to bring him back into the church. His sister had married Phineas Young, Brigham Young's brother, and Phineas Young was continually hoping and trying to bring Oliver back into the church. And one reason Oliver resisted was because he felt that some unfair and untrue accusations had been made against him when he was excommunicated in 1838, and he did not want to give the impression that he was guilty of those things because it would tarnish his reputation as a witness of the Book of Mormon. So he kind of delayed returning to the church until he felt that uh, his reputation had been preserved and that his testimony of the Book of Mormon would really mean something. So it actually delayed his coming back into the church because he was so intent on uh, testifying of the plates, you know. History is fun, and all this information can be worthwhile. But I'm always interested to hear how knowing this history, knowing what you know from your writing of this essay on the three witnesses in DNC 17, but how, how does this apply to you? I, I think it's important because it brings together both the uh, spiritual witness of the Book of Mormon and the empirical evidence for the Book of Mormon. kind of combines those just as the uh, statement of the three witnesses has those two aspects to it. They saw all of these artifacts. They saw Moroni, and it was a community experience. It wasn't one person just... By themselves. Right. And uh, so they did have an empirical experience, but they also had a spiritual confirmation that the uh, Book of Mormon was true. I've had both kinds of experiences. I've had the testimony of the Spirit as I've read the Book of Mormon, and I've also done historical research into all of the uh, 11 witnesses to test their uh, testimonies just as you would any piece of uh, historical evidence. And I believe that the Book of Mormon holds up very well in terms of the text itself. And I think through reading uh, the Book of Mormon... I have become convinced in a spiritual way that it is true, but I've also become convinced that the witnesses were solid witnesses through normal historical methodology. For me, the fact that it kind of met both of those objectives has been very important. And I believe it's important to the Lord because the uh, rather than just having calling witnesses who testified that they knew the Book of Mormon was true the way that we normally testify— the Lord provided an empirical standard for those witnesses, just as when Christ appeared to the Nephites, he had them uh, come and feel the wounds in his hands and his side, and he said, and now you know that I'm the Savior. So it seems to be an important thing for the Lord to have this empirical evidence that goes along with spiritual testimony. Well, and we have other revelations saying that it's in our mind and in our heart that we are confirmed these things. You bet. That's a good way of putting it. One of the last things I want to bring out in the section itself is that we have the testimony of Jesus Christ bearing witness to the divinity of the Book of Mormon. Is this the first time that we've had that? It seems to me like it's it's the first 
example I know of where the Lord or the Savior is in effect testifying of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Because this preceded their actual experience, and it did happen in that experience when they heard the voice of the Lord uh, proclaim that the Book of Mormon was true. But I believe this is the first time uh, that the Lord testified of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon in this way. Well, we will post a link to your essay, uh, The Testimony of the Three Witnesses, found as part of the Revelations in Context series that is found at history.lds.org, and we'll put a link to that at the posting of this episode at ldsperspectives.org. But thank you very much, Larry Morris, for coming in and talking about The Three Witnesses. Thanks, I really enjoyed it. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. I have found some very peaceful aspects of Mary. To look at Michelangelo's you brought up and to look at the Pieta, one of the most calming, glorious images ever created. It's not meant to be proportionally accurate, or Mary would be so much larger than Jesus, but it's symbolically accurate in her overwhelming and, if you might say, oversized love of this son and what it meant to be losing him. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices.